Hi everybody and thanks for downloading Talknosis After Dark, your one-stop shop for stuff we try and talk about but can't really explain because it's really hard to talk about. Anyway, joining us today <laughs> to help us do exactly that is Reverend Mr. Jonathan Stewart. Hello Jonathan, thank you for helping me once again with this uh, impossible task that we have set ourselves. Yes, it's, uh, I, I do enjoy our hour of talking about things that can't be put into words. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm happy. I'm happy to be here to attempt it. <laughs> and this particular topic that we will talk around and probably uh, maybe try and make some sense of is uh, Jewish gnosis, and specifically the intersection between uh, Judaism, uh, Judaic mysticism in particular, Gnosticism, and uh, all of that other stuff, and probably a fair dose of Buddhism thrown in for good measure. Uh, as we found out in the video show. And to help us do that, Rabbi Andrea Cohen-Kiner. Thank you for joining us once again. No, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, so uh, we tackled some interesting topics in the video portion. If you haven't watched that, go back and check that out now. We'll wait for you to come back. Um, but uh, if you have, uh, we talked a little bit about Jewish mysticism and its relationship to Gnosticism, but we didn't really get into, because it's a very complicated topic, uh, what Jewish mysticism actually is. So if you could give us in about um, 140 words or less, uh, you know, how, what is Jewish mysticism? No, I'm kidding about the limit, but... <laughs> Well, I would describe Jewish mysticism as um, looking at our faith tradition as um, a, a practice in life, a series of holidays and rituals to observe throughout the day and throughout the year, all of that with the point of making us beings that bring together what we would call heaven and earth, just for shorthand, the higher and the lower, uh, bringing spirit and intentionality and elevation into this world. Uh, we believe in Judaism that um, humans are uniquely positioned as uh, upright creatures with the capacity and the obligation to literally bring heaven and earth closer together. Um, I'll tell you a quick example of this. Um, there's a prayer shawl that we use in Judaism. It's called a talus. And um, by using a talus, to uh, envelop ourselves as we're uh, worshiping. We are taking, um, let's say, worm detrius, soil, dirt, uh -huh. which is transformed into, absorbed up into the cotton plant. The cotton plant is absorbed through human hands and industry and woven into fabric. And that fabric is then used for us as a ritual prayer garment. And in this way, we're taking detrius in the soil and transforming it, elevating it into consciousness mm. and prayer. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, th and that sounds a lot like, um, you, sometimes we kind of blur the lines, and, and we do it ourselves, you know, on the show and in our personal practices between the terms Gnostic, Gnosticism, and mystic, mm. and, and, you know, inner work. But even what you said there sounds kind of very Gnostic in the way that we know it from the Nag Hammadi text. You know, the humans have a very special role to play in this in this material world. Mm -hmm. and, and and I'm sorry, Rabbi, you used a phrase, um, humans are, are upright creatures? Upright. Humans are upright. Okay. I think we're the in, most in the Gnostic, upright, yeah. I was just about to say, in the Gnostic text, they constantly uh, talk about, the, like the Gospel of Thomas in, in the Nag Hammadi talks about mm -hmm. the standing ones. Uh, and, and Simon Magus, one of the early Gnostics, is the one who stands. They're the ones who are always upright. So, 
So sorry, you were just about to explain what that term means. If you could, uh, <laughs> if you could uh, elaborate on it. No, it's a beautiful parallel. I'm really, I'm really struck by it. I, I mean, I think it's actually self-evident. It's and also literal. I mean, it's built into our shape that um, you know we have our brain system, our heart system, our physical body implanted. We say through the liver. It's embodied in through the liver, and. Um, Implicit in that is the higher worlds above us. I mean, we're really shaped like a tree. If I, if we put our hands up, like we're reaching to heaven and we're reaching into earth, just as the trees are. And one of the central images in Jewish mysticism is called the tree of life. And that certainly has a parallel in the uh, Christian tradition where the cross is called the tree of life. And that cross is upright and vertical, the same as we are and the same as the tree of life is. So, it's almost as if we ourselves are uh, the parable or the metaphor, so to speak, um, for a truth that is just more subtle. We try to be upright. What that means in the vernacular is the same thing as it means in search and path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and um, in, in some traditions in, in in Kabbalah, there's this diagram, the tree of life, that you mentioned with the uh, the Sephiroth. And some people, some traditions map that onto the human body, you know, with the different spheres being on, on different parts of the human body, really making that connection between the physical and the divine. Um, and in Christian Kabbalah, actually, there, there's images of, of the crucified Christ where they kind of use him, that image, as a tree of life and, mm-hmm. and, and map the Sephiroth onto him. So that's that's very interesting. Uh, sorry, Father, you, you were going to say? Well, actually, I was going to um, I was going to mention that. Our viewers have probably heard of the Kabbalah, uh, uh, maybe in a broad term, maybe some have studied it more more deeply. Um, can you talk a little bit about it and uh, and how it is, um, what part it plays in the wider Jewish mysticism? Kabbalah literally means the received tradition. Uh, sometimes, because it does have that uh, root meaning of receiving, I sometimes uh, talk about Kabbalah, I sometimes translate it this way, like, do you get it? (laughs) (laughs) You know, someone tells you a joke or Uh uh, offers you a parable, and that parable has two functions. The function of a a parable, which uh, Jesus used quite a bit, is it's twofold. It's to reveal and also to hide. Mm Mm-hmm. So that the seeker has to go and look for it. They have to be receptive to the uh, message of the parallel. They have to unpack it. And that may take them a while. So um, we say uh, we say in the Kabbalistic tradition, you're not, you can't teach Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And some people take that as a prohibition, but I don't think it is a prohibition. I think it's saying you can't really give it to somebody else. You can talk about it in front of them, mm-hmm. um, and if they're receptive, they will get it. Mm. Um, but I would say Kabbalah broadly refers to, I, I usually, instead of the word mysticism, I often use the word subtle, uh, because I think it's just a little bit less murky, there's less assumptions about it, because I do think that um, Kabbalah is the heart of the theology and the spiritual psychology um, of the Jewish tradition, whether people are aware of it or not. And um, it's it's deeply embedded in uh, Jewish literature and uh, practice and theology. Um, that has been expressed uh, very, very differently in different languages, different imageries, different types of teachings, different types of 
communal structures for sharing and exploring of these ideas throughout history. Do I have a minute to say a little more about a very early school that I think our listeners might find fascinating? Please do, yeah. This mm. is podcast portion. Take, take as much time as you want yeah. on any topic, please. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so go on Google. Go on Google and Google um, uh, Sons of the Prophets. And you will find approximately 22 different citations of a group called the Sons of the Prophets in what I call the First Testament. I think um, many of your listeners will be more used to calling that the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I think you can understand why I don't call it that in right. the First Testament. <laughs> yeah. And um, those uh, students in the school of the Sons of the Prophets, I believe that was... Uh, the Gnostic school, the Jewish mystical school of the um, mid and late biblical period. And um, they were doing stuff like um, walking on water, finding lost objects, raising people from the dead, um, feeding um, the masses from a small amount of food, uh, curing familiar. and causing diseases by the word, by um, speech. Mm. Sounds familiar. Which for me, that gives a context to um, some of the work of Jesus in the later centuries. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Were you guys aware of that? Is that is that a new thought? I, I have never heard of the Sons no, of the Prophet or or the uh, these these particular traditions about them. So as, as soon as the show is over, I, I'm going to be hitting the <laughs> Google, uh, and uh, and I imagine, and hopefully, listeners, listeners, and watchers at home, wait to the show, pause the show, you right. know. Google sends the profit, then then hit play again. Don't do it while you're driving either. Yeah, don't do it while you're driving. Yeah, yeah, that that's very interesting. Um, and and again, when I talk about these more um, these more organized and scholarly and, and non-commodity ideas about Gnosticism and concepts about Gnosticism, there's there's some debate in the academy. Some people say, oh, you know, this is a, a Christian movement specifically, where I I really do see it starting as as a Jewish movement, and then the Christians. And later, you know, and I, I really kind of see it as perhaps even an Egyptian Jewish movement. They're meeting all the all this other thought and kind of combining it with their own mystical traditions. So, uh, so I do see it's something rooted in 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 the Jewish tradition, which which brings me to a question that uh, that I just added to the sheet uh, today. But um, in Christian Gnosticism, we have this figure, the the demiurge, who is. Um, not often not a very nice guy he's mm. sort of the lower aspect of of god uh you know he created this world and doesn't do a very good job with this and and some people have said and some people read this this figure as the the god of the as you call it the first testament so when you encounter these christian gnostic texts and this figure the demiurge do you do you see that figure as as the god of the first testament or is this kind of a, a misunderstanding or or a simplification of these texts and these concepts Okay, good. I'm, I'm going to start where you started um, on that stream of thought and say that what I find fascinating about the Nag Hammadi is that it isn't just Jewish and Christian material in there. There's there's feminist material, there's um, uh, Persian and Roman, and to me that's so exciting because I think between the time of Nag Hammadi and our time, I'm not sure that there were a lot of people on the planet that were holding as precious that many divergent traditions and that to me speaks about something um, very universal um, that is at the base impulse of the Gnostic tradition. I'd be happy to take credit for it but I hope and I think that it is um, universal in fact because 
wouldn't it have to be in order to be true for any of us? Hmm. And uh, then when we talk about the demiurge, it's funny, Jonathan, it's, it may not really be necessary to make a distinction between Christian Gnostic anti-Semitism mm. and just Christian anti-Semitism. There's, <laughs> there's a fair amount of that, and I think in both cases they are essentially misunderstandings. I mean, I can see the concept of demiurge in the First Testament, um, the God who walks in the garden and is jealous of Adam and Eve and wants them to limit their wisdom because they'll be as great as the gods and um, really gives a sense of... A, of a, you know what the idea of the demiurge, like a smaller God, not the ineffable, not the unending, and um, you know other ways that we might refer to, you know, a God uh, that would go beyond uh, these visions represented in the uh, of the demiurge in the text. So I see where I see where that comes from, and it's interesting that I think a related idea here is that. In several of the traditions that I have explored uh, through Gnosticism and uh, the study thereof, there appears to be something very deficient in the world. Don't you find that is a really common theme? Mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. Kabbalah, we talk about um, God self-limiting mm -hmm. so that creation, just a single spark of light from the divine and unending source can manifest in this world. So God is self-limiting. And right. not God, all. God, uh, God withdraws to to allow there to be space to have creation. Is that right in, in Kabbalah? Exactly. And then, yeah. And then and then within that tradition, there's a further sort of calamity that happens, which is um, that universal light that then enters creation. It can't be held in any single vessel, and as it starts to enter form or color or structure or any uh, any single thing those things all shatter. They cannot contain the um, full spectrum of light. And so this world, in a sense, is made out of the broken pieces of vessels that the unending God created and then sent light into. And we see that it is really a broken world with a lot of partial understanding that we need to bring the pieces together. I think that's a parallel idea to the idea of demiurge, that there are uh, powers and authorities in this world that are of a lower source, that are not fully transparent to um, the divine universal. It's it, the, There are different levels of understanding of these things, I mean, as we've been kind of talking about for the whole time, but um, what, I, what I have found is that there's one, one stage in the in your in a person's spiritual development where thinking of the demiurge kind of as a literal figure is helpful and then stepping back and seeing the demiurge in a more abstract way then becomes helpful and then there's a kind of you know layers upon layers of of, uh, of meaning and understanding as as with any <laughs> important spiritual thing i think but um when i read a lot of the the Nagamati scripture that deals with the demiurge, I kind of see those layers, but the that outermost layer of kind of literal bad guy figure is is still often there, and it's it's the most easily accessible because it's the most literal, I think, reading of a lot of those texts. Which actually leads me to another question I was going to ask: was um, the Gnostics tend to um, 
tend to take the scriptures uh, and kind of mess with them a little bit. We sometimes talk about it as like Genesis fan fiction. So you have, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the characters from the story that everybody knows, and then, but we just tweak it a little bit and we, we have them do this instead of that. And, and um, how, how do you approach that as, as, uh, as a Jewish person? How do you approach the Gnostic scriptures that do that? I think as a, as a Gnostic myself or seeker might be the language uh, that would be a little bit more palatable. I think I do that as well. I mean, um, we read the same scripture, uh, the Jewish people read the same scripture year after year, and the meaning that shines through to us is different year after year. Mm. Um, so if I'm in a Gnostic framework and reading my text, that's what I'm going to see in my text. Um, so I believe I believe I do it too. Um, actually, I'd like to um, finish up or pick up on a thought that uh, was between us a little uh, minute ago and talk about um, how I see some of some misrepresentation, let's say, of the Jewish tradition in Christian um, in the in the Second Testament. Mm. Um, the Pharisee, the idea of the Pharisee is um, mm. really considered, you know, very concrete and self-absorbed and seeking attention and pride and stuff like that. Um, in the, so I, so th those are my rabbis. Those are the good guys for me. Those are the <laughs> continuation of the um, biblical search and literature. I mean, these are people that talk about traveling through the different throne rooms to higher and higher levels of creation and they're you know, clearly seekers and part of the conduit for my tradition. And when they're represented in the Christian scriptures, they're represented as the old guys that are being replaced by the new Israel and um, and so on. And the idea of Pharisee was really saved for me, uh, uh, Father Tony, uh, similar to what you just brought. Um, I heard a uh, an Episcopalian, Episcopalian minister talk about his inner Pharisee. He said there was a part in himself that wanted uh, credit for everything, <laughs> that wanted to be seen for being like really smart. <laughs> and he was struggling with his inner Pharisee. So it's another example of, of tweaking our text and finding in it the meaning that's nourishing to us or that is perceptible to us at that level of our development. Hmm. And uh, it's worth pointing out, too, that, you know, one of the the first and greatest uh, uh, disciples and apostles and writers of Christianity was Paul, and and he he comes from the Pharisee. Uh, he was a Pharisee, and uh, if you closely read his letters, he, he never really identifies himself. He does. He never uses the term Christian. It wasn't around yet. He he still thinks like a Pharisee and writes like a Pharisee, and and very much considers himself um, a, a a Jew in the Pharisee tradition. Uh, you know, he he just he just has had some sort of experience or some sort of reorientation towards this this Christ figure that he's encountered. But he, it, my belief is that if you read him carefully, he never stopped being a, a, a Jewish Pharisee. So then, uh, that's just that's neither here nor there. But for some of our listeners who still have um, this sort of Sunday school Pharisees <laughs> are bad, like you you sometimes the term. Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up, Rabbi, because it's kind of in our almost a slang or in our day-to-day -day culture. You know, even people who aren't religious will kind of use the phrase Pharisee as a synonym for hypocrite, right? And that's, uh, uh, which I think is, is uh, completely wrong. You know, this is an important stream in, in both of our traditions. And the, the other thing, Jonathan, we'd, we'd spoken earlier about um, 
uh, is Judaism hidden? Uh, is is mysticism or Gnosticism embedded or hidden in Judaism? And what's the relationship between um, the Jewish tradition and the um, Gnostic stream of consciousness, let's say? And it's a similar thing in Christianity, isn't it? That there are yes. texts that seem a little bit more concrete that... As you're looking at it, you're going to see something more subtle, perhaps something more of a transmission that's felt rather than thought about. Um, so I think I think it's uh, it's shared in our tradition. It's a nature of being a seeker, but having a um, a multi-layered tradition that we're following that includes more concrete teachings through people. Those of us in the moments when we're at more concrete levels, right. Yeah, that, that, that's very well uh, worth pointing out. And uh, we have uh, a friend of the show uh, and a uh, um, clergy and seminarian in our church, uh, Deacon Michael Stroygen, and he uh, he says that if, if you can't find Gnosis in uh, in the Bible, you know, and I guess what you would call the first and second um, testaments, then then you, you you can't find Gnosis, right? Don't don't go running to the NHL to the uh, to the Nag Hammadi. You know, start with these texts and and, and find the, the subtleties in them first, and then you know, turn to the the more I guess blatant examples. And I always found that uh, to, to be to be quite profound. Um, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say in your tradition, I think there was sort of an act of stamping out of Gnostic interpretation. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and in in Judaism, I think it just sort of cooled off. And got called yeah. something else. Well, active stamping out, and I, I think for the you, you're looking at different periods of history, um, right. because the a lot of people like to say because everybody wants to you know be the underdog. I think, but uh, a lot of contemporary Gnostics like to say, oh, the Church stamped out Gnosticism with the First Council and uh, First Ecumenical Council, and and when they fixed the canon, and that that isn't really what happened. Gnosticism just kind of lost, you know, the the war of ideas that first time. Now the Cathars were certainly actively stamped out, the the, the medieval Gnostics, but um, for good or for ill, Gnosticism just didn't take the way that uh, what would become orthodoxy did. Yeah, and I, I've also heard it explained too that when the because, and I'm sure you probably agree, Rabbi, uh, because we believe this stuff is true. Like if if all if if every mystical and gnostic and religious text uh, was disappeared tomorrow, this stuff would bubble up again. Yeah, because it's it's you know it's true and it's it's somehow connected to our our souls, our consciousness, our subconscious. We'll constantly be rediscovering these these gnostic ideas. But but coming to that, the uh, as as gnosticism, as, as Father Tony said, was either stamped out or um, uh, in the Christian tradition or or. Um, um, devalued uh, as it lost the war of ideas. Every time it bubbled up, it was either stamped down or, or I just recently heard, uh, you know, the, the monasteries, the great monasteries, were, were partly the church's way of just getting mystics out of their hair. Uh, you know, it, you know, just, oh, you, you know, go over you, there. You go over there. You go over there and do your thing, right? You can pray and have mystical experiences and write because, you know, we have some beautiful medieval texts from the from the Christian tradition, like the Cloud of Unknowing that, yeah. you know, see the monastic settings. So, and of course, so again, writing was harmless back then because nobody could read. Nobody could read it, so it was, it, you know, instead it, 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 it of this act of we're going to burn them at the stake, which, by the way, of course, they also did. But <laughs> <laughs> you can't burn. Spoiler alert. Burn. So they were like, just, uh, yeah, spoiler alert. They were like, you, you guys go into the monastery. You know, maybe you shouldn't be an active priest or be talking to people. So just go over there and do your thing. 
Well, let me ask you something about that, if I if I may. I, I think there's um, I appreciate the reframe that you gave um, Father Tony about um, the uh, stamping out or losing the battle of ideas and so forth. I, I have a question about that, which is, um, it seems to me part of the teaching of Jesus that not everyone was going to get this. And maybe oh, sure. it is meant to be an interior yeah. teaching. As we say, we say, if you get it, you get it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes I tell people uh, who come to Gnosticism, I say, uh, you know, if you can... If you can do it any other way, like if you can, if you feel comfortable just going to a regular church or you know whatever your religious tradition, um, and and you can be you can be happy doing that, then do that because Gnosticism is work. It's a lot of work, and you can't just sit back and expect somebody to, to spoon feed it to you. And people come to us and say, "Well, tell me what you believe, and I'll believe that." And I'm like, "Well, I can't really do that. It's not it's not as easy as all that." Um, so yeah, it, it is a it, it is definitely a tradition that, um, yeah, it's it's not it's not evident on the outside. You have to dig at it to find it, and and, and my feeling anyway is once you do, you can't unsee it. And uh, it's like the guy from the Matrix who wants to take the blue pill and go back in, right? Uh, <laughs> Cipher, I think the character was. The Matrix is a big we're we're big on the Matrix around here. <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's really funny because we're both saying that we're both saying that we find that Gnosticism or how we understand that is a universal impulse shared by all, mm -hmm. possibly the true root of uh, many many traditions expressed in many ways, and at the same time hard to find, mm. uh, must be sought, and so it seems something like that, like the hiding of that light inside of the physical vessel, that that's also universal, so yeah. the seeker must seek and grow. I might even go a step further back. I, I don't think that necessarily Gnosticism, in, in like large G Gnosticism, uh, is that is that root, that that central core of oh, the yes, mystical I tradition. I think it's Gnosis, maybe if you want to use that word, but even, maybe even something deeper than that that connects us all that we we all kind of understand and we talk around. But again, it's that finger pointing at the moon. You know the different. The you know the different window dressing for the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. The Hebrew word just for your in interest, perhaps, is for for what is called gnosis in uh, is yada. It's uh, one of the ways of knowing. There's a lot of uh, different ways mm -hmm. to express perception, understanding, and so on. But yada is um, like a sensed knowing. It's a, a physical sensation. Uh, when Adam knew Eve, and that when he knew Eve, she became pregnant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, the knowing in the biblical sense that you hear all the time. That's what we say. That is that word. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and and actually, when, when the Gnostics rewrite Genesis, they they pick up on that, and and Adam kind of first, or or I shouldn't say first, he gets Gnosis again through through Eve. And they actually play on that in Gnosis and sort of that big G Gnosticism sense. Yeah. So they pick up on that subtlety in the Hebrew and they, they bring it forward in, in the in the secret book of John. And, you know, and, and Adam wakes up, you know, and he sees the world as it is because of Eve uh, through knowing her. You know, she, she brings in the Gnosis. So that's, that's very, very, very interesting. That um, she's, she's the route back as opposed to being the one who causes the fall. Right. Precisely, yes, yes, and that's mm -hmm. you know one of my one of my major peeves of more mainstream kind of in you know and uh, there is sort of a temptation in, in Christian Gnosticism to knock other Christian traditions, which, which I try to avoid because I'm 
quite fond of the mainline Christian tradition, but though that is something I, I do, of course, quite hate quite a bit, where Eve is suddenly the, you know, the bad, bad one of the one who caused all this trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in fact, she's, she's the smartest of us all on our way back home, as she said. Um, Rabbi, uh, this is going to lead, lead into a few other questions. So I, I live into, I live in Montreal. Uh, I actually live in the heart of one of the world's largest Hasidic communities um, uh, in the Mainland slash Uchman neighborhood. And, and here in Montreal, people, you know, the Hasidim kind of keep to themselves. Uh, and people see them in their black clothes, uh, and there's this perception that they're a very rigid and legalistic people, basically kind of Amish in the city. But the truth is, is that there, there's a strong, mystical, passionate um, current in, in the Hasidic tradition. Is, is that so? Yes, it it is the case. Um, although any received tradition can be um well let me put it this way um lava can change into pumice Mm -hmm. so something very um hot and close to the source and very fluid and subtle can be made into a piece of pumice which i can pick up and hit you over the head with it (laughs) and say you've got to do it my way i've got the right way (laughs) and i think that is a natural tendency and that is what happens um I know that you're aware that I translated um, a work of a Hasidic uh, master who actually perished uh, during World War II, and um, I had the chance to meet one of his um, descendants, actually a great nephew, who is the current leader of that Hasidic sect. He's a man from Israel, and um, when I was speaking with him, I I said to him, um, I just, I can't imagine what it must have been like to grow up in a household that was full of light in the way that I imagined his tradition was. And he faltered for the first time in our conversation. He tried to, you know, praise his parents, praise his dad and the beautiful environment he was raised in. And then he just stopped himself and he said, we all have to do our own work. Yeah. So I don't think you automatically get it from being in a Hasidic tradition. You can be in a Hasidic tradition and repeat the teachings as if they were pumice and hold to your tradition as if you're better than others and so on. And But I do think that if you're in an environment where people are trying to say blessings before eating and uh, be aware of their intentions and speak with a healing intent and pray regularly, there is a good chance that you'll be nourishing something internal that we would call Gnostic or search or whatever words we would put for it. So I, I think if you're in a culture that values um, the moon and mm-hmm. their tradition helps them point to the moon, um, that yeah, you might you might get uh, some sensitive souls coming out of that community, definitely. And that leads uh, me to ask, so you translated this work by, let's see if I get this right, how Halimus Halimus Shapira Halimus Shapira okay so can you tell us a little bit specifically about that work and and some of the practices that are in it and some of the perspectives that it takes Mm. he says he says that you can't learn his system from one piece of it he says that it's a whole <laughs> so, so probably not. I mean, yeah. <laughs> technically, I won't be able to do that. 
Um, but he was a very, very precious man and a loving man. I'll tell you what, I had the same experience with him as I had with the Nag Hammadi. When I started reading the Nag Hammadi, I'd be reading stuff, Christian, Jewish, whatever, and I would be able to feel the teachings. That's how I knew that I was a Gnostic. <laughs> yes. And the same thing happened to me when I was first hearing the teachings of Kalanamus Shapiro. I was with my teacher, Reb Zalman, uh, uh, Shachter of Blessed Memory, and he was teaching um, Reb Kalanimus, and I was sitting in the class, and I had that same feeling in my chest that he's not really teaching my head. I'm This is a transmission, and I'm receiving it. And the thought that I had in my head at that moment was, I need to learn more about this. And my teacher, Reb Zalman, just at that same exact moment was saying, this book needs to be translated. And so I literally held out my hand, and he literally put that book into my hand. Mm -hmm. And I had a contract to uh, translate it within a very short period of time, even though I hadn't published before and so on. So this is a teacher, a Jewish teacher, that was very close to us in time. If he hadn't died, he could have been someone that I could have learned from, and I certainly could have been taught by his students if he if he had lived. Um, a lot of the ideas that I've been sharing with you already this evening that were quatripartite, that is to say spirit, mind, affect, and action, were quatripartite. It's our job to connect heaven and earth, um, that there's a spark in each of us and we're meant to let it shine and use it to raise and elevate not just ourselves but the world around us. These are all very basic ideas in his teaching and actually in all Hasidic teaching and all Gnostic teaching. Huh. Oh, that, that's very interesting, very profound. And again, it's just, uh, I mean, everything you just kind of listen to them there and, and they're in his teachings and, and in other teachings. And that, that can also be a good summation, I think, of our Gnostic traditions as well. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it is, it is uh, I, I find it fascinating when we really are kind of speaking the same language and talking some of the, uh, some of the same concepts. Um, I, I guess sort of diverting a little bit and, and getting more into specifics, uh, Rabbi, the, uh, the Christian Gnostics, you know, they sort of had this complicated relationship to the First Testament, but they, they thought that the prophets particularly kind of spoke with the voice of, of the ineffable, of the higher God. You know, they, they kind of had a, they, you know, the the social message of the prophets was particularly special to them. Do you, do you have a similar relationship to the prophetic voice, to Isaiah and some of these other figures? Do you see them particular, as particular deliverers of, of a kind of gnosis? Yeah, so when you say, Jonathan, when you say prophets in that sense, I, I, I assume, I'll check it out with you, that you're referring to what I would call the classical prophets, that is some of the later books of the First Testament, um, Isaiah, Ezekiel, is that that's what you mean about the classical prophets? Is that correct? That's it, precisely. And then, so I would add to that, or augment uh, your your perspective that you're representing there, is that to say, when did prophecy start? I mean, we in the First Testament have Adam conversing mouth to mouth with uh, God, uh, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. So we don't hear about their training. We don't hear about their revelation that was dictated and written down, but we could assume that they must have had the same preparation or a similar preparation for them also to become vessels of divine communication 
as the prophets were, the classical prophets were. So um, I would say that the school of the prophets, the prophecy school, was kind of invisible. It was implicit but not explicit until we get into the period, the historical period of the later prophets. But I think as a Jewish seeker, I'm just going to take some of those um, same ideas and say, Moses also must have prepared himself to be a very clear vessel for the transmission that he received, Noah similarly, um, Adam similarly, and so on. So I'm just going to project that process back. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's funny you bring that up because it's very, uh, again, talking to related traditions uh, uh, and our, our brothers and sisters in the, the Abrahamic world, but um, in Islam, they're very definite and it's very important that Adam is a prophet um, mm -hmm. so it, it just I mean that's neither here nor there but it is interesting to see that you know what you just said again popping up in another tradition um, father you're uh, you're particularly interested in, in ascent traditions oh funny you should uh, mention that yeah so uh, so I was wondering if we uh, if you have any questions maybe about uh, about the chariot about Merkaba Yes. What, what about it? <laughs> no, that's, let's, uh, let's start right there. No, actually, um, uh, longtime fans of this show, do we have fans? I don't know, viewers, uh, listeners um, will, will know that I harp on about this near constantly and they're probably bored to tears by now. But one of the things that I find very interesting about the uh, Gnostic texts and particularly the um, the, the the Platonizing Sethian texts as as um, uh, uh, um, what's his name now uh, Dylan uh, yeah, Dylan Burns Dylan Burns, Burns thank you yeah Dylan Burns has been uh, working uh, uh, lately and um, stemming also from the work of John Turner that um, this idea that the the Gnostics um, probably through their association with uh, the, the Jewish mystics of their region and maybe also Egyptian uh, Egyptian religion as well. Um, Undertook a kind of pre-mortem visionary ascent uh, to through through the spheres as they understood them to the the throne of God and and you know understood the uh, you know that that was kind of the root of their gnosis in a certain sense and um, I don't know a lot about Merkaba uh, mysticism but I but I know that it's related. Can you kind of fill in some gaps for me? Uh, yeah, but we'll have to do it together. Um, okay. Merkava means chariot, and which is implicitly a vessel that uh, we can rise, ascend, and descend on. And as far as I know, the chariot idea would have been the primary um, visual for Jewish uh, mysticism in the proto-rabbinic period. Let's say from um, let's say 300 years on either side of uh, the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So we have this concept of maybe an onion-shaped universe, and um, our prophets um, and adepts are able to go higher and higher into the throne rooms. Um, our, the Talmud and other layers of Jewish literature have instructions for what to say when you confront the yeah. resistance of moving up and down. So I, I, it, it seems to have been... Um, probably the common celestial image that was in the Mediterranean mindset there. I, I think in later um, in later layers of Kabbalah, you uh, move into a tree image, and that becomes a predominant, let's say, model or paradigm. Um, the letters are very important in Judaism, and of course all these things 
layer over each other and our different ways of bringing out um, similar truths or um, interbedded truths in there. So um, the development of the tree imagery doesn't cancel out the idea of Merkava, right. but it does become a new uh, predominant image. Hmm. So uh, interesting you mentioned the kind of um, the challenges that the, the uh, the seeker will meet on the way that um, almost like a, a password, right? The secret password that they know for each uh, each challenge that they meet along the way. Literally, exactly that. Uh, don't say this. Don't say that it's a the area where water is. <laughs> if you perceive it at water as water, you you miss the uh, you missed the truth of it. Yeah, and so on. So they and and to me, actually, that does feel more. I'm going to use the word embedded um, in. Um, in academic circles, embedded means um, that the truth is really represented in a very thick metaphor, that it's not very direct. Mm. Um, later aspects of, like Reb Klonimus, for example, when he teaches about Gnostic perception, he is very direct in his language, um, talking about the spark in each of us gives rise to being and free choice inside of us. He you know, talks as much more directly than um, this idea of going into a chariot and rising up mm -hmm. through different levels and so on. So I, I would say the chariot language is more embedded and it's frankly harder for me to unpack. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the shared symbolic language that was being used at the time, uh, in my own personal opinion, it, people, people reading it in that day would have said, oh, sure, they're talking about this, whatever it is, and it was just kind of in the zeitgeist, and everybody, everybody just had a handle on what it was, you know. And that was the shorthand of their day, and whatever cultural something that they all latched onto there is, you know, if not lost to us, then buried under <laughs> two thousand years of um, other stuff. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then uh, some of the languages, the words. Um, some of the names for angels and archons and spirits and, and stuff like that are maybe Hebrew, Greek. They probably have um, various um, etymological uh, sources. Mm -hmm. And it might really be hard for us to, I, I think you'd have to sit with this for quite a while yeah. to unfold it and, and let the meaning come in. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect that, well, I, I know for the Gnostics, I, I, well, I don't know, I suspect for the Gnostics that it was some kind of, um, initiatory ritual, uh, and, and in the case of the Sethians, the, the five seals um, might have been some kind of a uh, um, an empowerment to do that ascent work, uh, uh, putting mm -hmm. on a kind of spiritual armor. Um, right. In the sense, I think, from my understanding, in the sense that you, one would have to get into a, that chariot to do the ascent in the in the Merkaba tradition, but. That, that initiation would be to kind of create the chariot to kind of switch the simple session. Sure, uh, yeah. Prepare you, yeah, prepare you to, to actually be worthy and to actually give you the, the tool, the literal tool of the chariot to... Uh, to Can you say what that, what the, how you see, do you see the chariot as... Um, well, the, the vehicle. words or the vehicle. How, yeah. do you, how do you see that? Is that a physical thing? Probably not. No, no, no. Uh, no. Yeah, I see, I see it as um, if you if we're talking strictly metaphor, it's the kind of mental preparation I think that you do the the mental preparation that would create the the proper headspace, if you will, for yeah, for the, that work to be able to be done. 
Sorry that makes sense. It's the training, but, so to speak. Yeah. The training. It's it's the the work. You can't buy the chariot or borrow it. You have to build it yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's that that you know. Sorry, that's that that's how I understand the metaphor. So like you're you're doing you know you're going through these initiations. You're going through these purifications. You're going through this inner work, and that is the creating of the chariot. Yeah, and that's and that seems like a lot. But that's actually only the first step. Right. <laughs> made you know you, you you smelted the iron you cut down the wood you built it you made it uh, and that was a whole lot of work and then the real work starts where you actually get in the chariot and start the ascent to the descent yeah uh well we are uh coming to the end of our time here uh, jonathan any final questions you wanted to ask anything we didn't get to yet I, I think that's it. Uh, well, it's not it because well, of course, of course we, could, we could literally talk for the rest of our lives. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's been a wonderful show, and, and I've learned quite a bit. Um, and, and thanks a lot, Rabbi. And, and of course, now I have another book to read. So yep. I, uh, definitely, <laughs> that's that's kind of the thing on this path is that there's always another book to read. But but yours will actually go. Your translation will actually go into my queue as the next one because now I'm very intrigued. Yeah. Thank you. It was lovely to exchange with you. Thank you both. Yes, well, thank you, and, and we hope we can do it again soon, and, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll find lots of stuff we can talk about. And uh, we will put the link to your uh, temple in, our, uh, in the show notes here for the document, and we'll also add a link to the book for uh, people to go and, uh, and pick that up. I assume you can get that at Amazon and other, uh, other bookseller locations? Yes, you can. All right, fantastic. So uh, I guess that'll do it for us tonight. Uh, if, uh, if you have any thoughts on this subject, please do put them in the comments of the, uh, of the blog post here because um, this, is, uh, th- this kind of interfaith dialogue is, is very interesting to me and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it as well. So for those of you who are listening along at home, we will see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c. 